everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and after last week's episode, I promised you a bit of a palate cleanser. Have you ever heard someone say, if you believe that, I have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you? It's an expression used to imply someone is very gullible and easy to trick. Because we all know that you can't, in fact, buy the Brooklyn Bridge, right? Right? Well, tonight's story is about the man who sold the Brooklyn Bridge over and over for years. True story. This is the story of George C. Parker. But first, the Victorian Society tip. Where I live in the northeastern U.S., we are about to head into the winter months, so I thought it would be an appropriate time to share a few tips on how Victorians kept warm during the colder weather. The first tip is dress in layers. Women could wear the same dresses year-round, but adding layers both underneath and on top was the first line of defense as temperatures dropped. Women wore stockings of cotton or silk, multiple pairs if necessary, wool pantalettes. Pantalettes are those like split bloomers that a woman wears under her skirts. A wool chemise, which we would probably describe as a full-length slip, and her corset. This is the undergarment layer. Outer layers consisted of extra wool or flannel petticoats than their usual dress or gown. Cloaks were preferred over coats as the more practical choice to allow for poofy dress sleeves as those were fashionable during the time. They were made of wool, silk, or velvet and varied in length from waist to knee length and came with or without hoods. Add tall boots, gloves, a hat, and a muff, and it was not uncommon that a Victorian woman could be wearing nearly 40 pounds of clothes before all was said and done. Men would also trade lighter fabrics for heavier ones like wool. Cravats were not just fashionable, they helped keep necks warm. They wore tall leather boots and gloves, often fur-lined. Long coats and the Iverness cape was a very popular choice. That's the short cape that covers the man's shoulders that Sherlock Holmes is often depicted wearing. And if they could afford it, both men and women wore fur and animal skins to keep warm, and they did not spare any animal. The second tip is how to decorate your home for warmth. Heavy drapes obviously blocked drafts and kept warmth in, but many Victorians would line their walls with tapestries, which were not only beautiful, but were literally being used to insulate their walls. Third tip, utilize your foot warmers and bed warmers. Foot warmers could be moved from room to room and were made of porcelain, ceramic, or metals. They would be filled with hot coals or sometimes boiling water. Similarly, copper bed warmers would be filled with hot coals and slid over sheets like an iron before bedtime to warm one's bed before climbing in. Speaking of beds, we think of canopy beds as luxurious and dramatic, but in Victorian times, they were more practical. Canopies and drapes helped keep warmth in while sleeping. The fourth tip is to get cozy. It's well known that most Victorian homes could very well have a fireplace in each room of the house, but even in wealthy families, it wasn't uncommon to find the master and mistress of the house gathered around the hearth with their servants in wintertime, taking full advantage of the largest and coziest fire in the house, plus conserving all of their body heat to one room. Likewise, it wasn't uncommon for family members to snuggle up in bed together at night to stay warm. So grab a friend, grab a pet, and stay safe and warm this season, friends. A Good Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Please take care while listening.
George C. Parker was born in 1860 to Irish immigrant parents. Growing up, he had four brothers and three sisters, and is also known that he graduated from high school. Although we don't know much about his early life, we can paint a bit of a picture based upon what we know of New York City living at the time. Just imagine how exciting it must have been to grow up in New York City during that era. In his first 10 years of life, he saw the first transcontinental railroad completed, bringing all sorts of trade and commerce to and from the city. He saw the city's first skyscrapers go up, tenement buildings were going up left and right, the Civil War had ended, and America was truly becoming the land of opportunity. More and more people were arriving each day looking for a better life and better opportunities for their families. And they were finding it. A lot of people came to America with nothing and became self-made men, as they say. So this is young George Parker's New York City. It comes as no surprise that George became an enterprising young man himself. Being the son of immigrants, he probably wasn't living the high life, so he had more than a few ways to make a buck. Not all of them on the up and up, though. And by the time Ellis Island opened as an immigration processing station in 1892, George was an established con man. Now, George was probably not the first to come up with this con, but it's the one that he seemed to be the best at. And that con was selling the Brooklyn Bridge to tourists and newly arrived immigrants. If you don't know, the Brooklyn Bridge spans the East River, New York City, connecting Manhattan and Brooklyn. It's a suspension cable stay hybrid design. The total length is 1.1 miles long and its two towers reach 278 feet into the sky. Its construction started in 1870 when young George was only 10 years old and it opened in 1883 when George was a young man of 23. At the time, it was 20% longer than any bridge ever built. It averaged about 4.5 million pedestrians crossing the bridge every year and during those early years, there was a toll to cross. It cost a penny to cross by foot, five cents for a horse and rider, 10 cents for a horse and wagon, and farm animals were allowed at the price of five cents per cow and two cents per sheep or hog. Remember, while the city was springing up on the island of Manhattan, much of the surrounding area was still rolling hills and woodlands. So George would pay the ferry drivers from Ellis Island to spot potential targets for him. They would scout out newly arriving immigrants with dollar signs and stars in their eyes, who were unfamiliar with the local laws and customs, and who looked like they might have a little bit of cash to take a chance on an exciting opportunity. The drivers would let these newcomers in on a little secret that they knew about a man who was on the verge of an exciting, lucrative business opportunity, and they would send them straight to George Parker. Being the professional he is, George rented office space near the bridge itself and would invite these new potential business partners in where he would show them impressively forged documents, convincing them that he owned the Brooklyn Bridge. Usually he said something to the effect of that he was looking for toll booth operators, but he didn't want to bother with the building and maintenance and paperwork of the tolls, so he was willing to let some investors take on that responsibility and in return they could keep a portion of the tolls they collected. And then he would effectively sell them the rights to set up a toll on the bridge for anywhere from $1,000 to $5,000, which is about $32,000 to $168,000 in today money. They'd shake hands, sign documents, and off they'd go, the proud new owner of the Brooklyn Bridge. Usually, they'd realize they'd been tricked when they tried to erect new toll booths on the bridge and were stopped by New York City police, who had to break it to them that the bridge is not and cannot be privately owned. George had multiple aliases and fake office locations that by the time the police realized he'd done it again, he was in the wind. 
So he was pretty successful at it. He later admitted that he'd sold the Brooklyn Bridge at least twice a week for years. Now, he was a professional liar, so we have to take his word for what it's worth, but he absolutely succeeded in the con a number of times. In fact, the model worked so well, he sold other New York monuments too, including Madison Square Garden, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Statue of Liberty, and Ulysses S. Grant's tomb. In the Ulysses S. Grant tomb scam, he posed as Grant's grandson, who was in dire straits trying to repair the tomb and was seeking investors to help him complete the necessary maintenance. Grant was viewed as a union hero, so George had no trouble finding wealthy investors to help out. So while George was good at what he did, he wasn't perfect, and he was convicted of fraud on three occasions. After one conviction around 1908, when George was around the age of 48, he casually picked up the coat and hat of an officer who had just entered the building, put them on, and walked right out the front door of the courthouse. I couldn't find if they actually found him and brought him back after his escape, but regardless, he was caught a fourth time in 1928 for passing a bad check. The law stated that if someone is convicted of four felonies, the mandatory sentence is life in prison. After that, George was sent to Sing Sing Prison outside of New York at the age of 68. He remained there until his death at the age of 77, where he was one of the most popular inmates among the guards and inmates alike, regaling them with stories of his exploits. Others tried to replicate George's success, but eventually processors at Ellis Island started handing out new arrival cards that stated you can't buy public buildings or streets. Further, George C. Parker is credited with inspiring the popular expression, if you believe that, I've got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. If you head over to Instagram or TikTok at a goodnight for a murder, you can see some photos of George plus some vintage New York City photos. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Goodnight for Our Murder newsletter. Each month I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. I am currently taking a break from producing bonus Patreon content for the November episodes so I can try and get out in front of the research, record, and publish schedule a little bit. You can still sign up for any of the tiers and get the benefits and listen to the back catalog of bonus content on Patreon, but there won't be any new stories added this month. Thank you for understanding. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com. Also, follow me on Instagram or TikTok at agoodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. Bye.